Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this Easter season giving you thanks that you would forgive each one of us individually, give us new hope and new life, that you are a good, good father, that you have good things in store each and every day, even in the trials and the difficulties of life. And Lord, we celebrate this resurrection season where all creation comes alive again to declare your glory, your power and your authority over all of life. We give you praise, amen. Started a new series a couple weeks ago entitled What If? And the essence of it is that there are a lot of what-if questions that we should be asking as we go through this life. What if I'm on the wrong path? What if I'm pursuing the wrong dreams? What if I have the wrong motives? And so as we go through this series, we'll ask a lot of those questions. As you can see, last week's title was, What If I Succeed? And of course, we were talking about what does it really mean to succeed in this world? that the world would define success by the things that we accomplish or the things that we acquire, wealth, position, influence, status, fame, that we might say that's success. But it could be that one would succeed in the world and still fail. For the foundation scripture of this whole teaching, this whole series is, what good would it be for a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul. And so we talked about what is real success? Is it found just in this world? And we looked at the scripture in Ecclesiastes where King Solomon, who was extraordinarily wealthy, very powerful, very influential, said that he became greater by far than anyone in all Jerusalem that had ever been there, that he denied himself nothing that his eyes desired, that he refused his heart no pleasure. And he had the resources to do that. I mentioned last week that I think most people in our culture would like to have been like Solomon, that they had all the resources, opportunities, wealth, whatever it might be, to indulge their desires to the fullest. And he did that very thing, yet it says he came to a conclusion that when he surveyed all that he had done, all that he had toiled after, that he found it meaningless, a chasing after the wind that he built great palaces and gardens and many things. He'd accomplished much. Surely he was well known, not only in his own country, but in others. And yet he said it was a chasing after the wind, something meaningless. Now, if you're a very, very young person, I think it's hard to really grasp what that scripture is saying. It certainly would have been hard for me as a teenager or young adult. But after you've lived a few decades, 
you do realize that some of the things that you thought were extremely important when you were young maybe didn't matter that much. And some of the things that you pursued that you thought would be the answer to life that would give you the fullness of life seemed rather hollow, not what you thought they would be. Or maybe you thought that you would accomplish something, some great dream and get to that place and find that would be the fullness of life and you actually got there and thought, is this all? Isn't there something more? And that's what Solomon found was that you can pursue many things in this world and if you're pursuing them without Christ as your focal point, it could be very empty. Now, God does call us to employ our gifts and talents and use them to his glory. And as you are seeking him, hungering and thirsting for him and knowing him, walking in his will, using your gifts and talents according to his will, then there's something there that's good, healthy, and full. But if you're doing it only for your own desire, your own pleasure, it will end up empty. And that's what Solomon found. That success in this world, the way the world defines it, can leave you really searching for answers. But real success is found in knowing God, loving him, and loving people. It's the two great commandments. To know him, to encounter him, to get to know him more and more each day of your life, and to learn in knowing him to love people in a way that you could not do apart from him. That if you spend your life loving people and loving God, it's not empty. It's not a chasing after the wind. There's a fullness, a certainty in it that is good and healthy. Now, this week, what I want to do is talk about essentially the same question from a different direction. That is, what if I fail? Now again, we have to decide and define what is failure. Because the world would say you failed if you didn't accomplish something, you didn't succeed at something, but God might see you as a success. I learned recently that the head basketball coach, the current head basketball coach at the University of North Carolina is a strong Christian who's very committed to his faith And if you paid any attention to the final four, you know, they got to the finals, but they lost. And many people may have looked at that as if they failed. But it could well be that he is living his life in such a way and imparting values to his players that are of a godly nature such that it didn't matter what the score of the game was, he may have succeeded or won, so to speak. Because what the world sees as success could be the very opposite of what God sees as success. And likewise, what the world sees as failure could be the very opposite in the kingdom of God. In fact, the longer I live, the more often I think that if you look at the world, surmise it, understand it, look in the very opposite direction, then you'll find God's perspective. That the world is opposed to truth. In fact, it's why we're in a society now that calls evil good and good evil. It's the very opposite of what God would say. And so I want to raise the question of what if I fail? 
Do you know that, the, that men tend to fear failure more than anything else? Women tend to fear rejection more than anything else. Now that is a generalization. There are, very, there are other aspects to it, but men tend to fear failure. Therefore, they want and desire respect. Women tend to fear rejection. They want and desire love in the form of security and affection. And you see, those things are very related to one another that we're often driven away from what we fear in order to try to gain what we want. And sometimes we don't even realize that's what we're doing. But I want to explore what does it mean to potentially fail, to really fail, or to succeed in a way that God would have you succeed. And to start, we'll go to this scripture in the book of Exodus, where it's the story of Moses being called to be the leader of the nation of Israel as God delivers them from bondage in Egypt. Now, if you know his story, he was born to a Jewish family, but very quickly he ended up in the palace of Pharaoh, essentially adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, because the Pharaoh was out to kill all of the young ones of the Jewish nation. And so Moses is initially raised in luxury, in privilege, but eventually he chooses to step away from his adopted background. He then made a mistake at one point where in his anger, he killed an Egyptian. And then as a consequence, he left, essentially went to the backside of the desert and spent 40 years there as a herdsman living quietly not expecting that there was anything extraordinary that was going to go on in his life. And then eventually God appeared to him, the burning bush scenario. And God was going to call him to an extraordinarily special role. Now, it does raise the question of why did God call Moses? It's really the same question of why does God call anybody to any special role? And it boils down to it's God's sovereign choice. Now, he sees things in our hearts that he wants to use, things that he instilled there even before our birth. And he knows who will, who will submit to his will and cooperate and who will not. But it's not that we qualify ourselves or somehow present ourselves before God in such an excellent way that he'll say, oh, I'll use you because you're exceptional. It's because God sovereignly chooses who he will use in a given circumstance. And undoubtedly, in the case of Moses, before his birth, God had planned how he would use him. God's sovereign hand had protected his very life from the point of his birth all the way through. And then he's going to call him to do a very, very special job. It's so special that if you think about the New Testament and the transfiguration, it was the time when Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They went up to this mountain and Jesus was transformed into a glorious figure. And who was with him? Moses and Elijah. That Elijah was the great prophet of the Old Testament. Moses was the great leader of Israel. And undoubtedly, they appeared there. God brought them there as a statement to the disciples. But it was a very privileged thing that Moses could be at that place. But we find Moses in this scripture at the beginning of what's going to be something very profound. And he said, he's really, God has said to him, I'm going to use you in this way. And Moses' response is, look, I've never been eloquent. 
neither in the past nor now have I been able to speak well. I am slow of speech and tongue. In other words, he is giving God an excuse as to why he is not the right guy to do this job. The Lord said to him, look, who is it that made you and gave you a mouth who makes one deaf or mute, who gives you sight or makes you blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, I'm the one in charge of all things, including your characteristics. He says, now go, I will help you and I will speak, help you speak and will teach you what to say. So basically God says, look, Moses, I've called you to a very, very special job. You think you're not up to it, you're inadequate, but you don't have to worry. I'm gonna give you the gifts and talents to do the job. Now in this case, you gotta really think about it. Moses is a human being. God is saying that he's gonna be, use him to deliver Israel from Egypt. Now could anybody deliver Israel at that time? They're a huge nation, huge in population, yet they are slaves in Egypt. And the Egyptian army is very strong. Certainly they're much larger in population than the Israelites. If you were just looking at it from a rational standpoint, you would say there's no possible way that Israel can be delivered from Egypt. And if you're Moses, you're thinking, I don't want this job. I mean, really. And I dare say most people would be thinking, I am hallucinating. God's talking to me and telling me to deliver an entire nation. The scripture goes on to say that Moses responded, Lord, please send someone else. Have you ever said such a thing? I dare say, maybe you didn't say it exactly like that, but I dare say most of us have, or at least at some point will, in your heart be wanting to say, please send someone else. I know I have. I've come to a place where I felt like the, the Lord was calling me to something and in my heart I was thinking anything but this. And then maybe it's something God calls you to in a leadership role like this and you think I'm not up to it. Well, if you were up to it, if you thought you had all the strength to do it, God wouldn't call you to it. Why? He needs people in positions of leadership who are dependent upon him and humble and broken before him. If Moses was eloquent of speech and had all the characteristics to handle it himself, he might not have been as useful. That it's in our weakness that God is strong and oftentimes, very often, God calls us to do things where we think we are inadequate. And it's in the inadequacy that God is using us to accomplish something good. Now, here's an important point to keep in mind. Everybody here has gifts and talents. Some of you are very good at certain things. You're not so good at other things. And we tend to want to gravitate to do the things we're good at and stay away from the things that we're not so good at. But here's the problem. The things that you are good at, your strengths, can also be your greatest weakness. Because in your strengths, pride can seep in and you think, I can handle it all by myself and pride goes before a fall. 
It's often in our weakness where we're most dependent upon God, most trusting, and there is where he is doing the best work. And so Moses thinks in his own abilities, he can't do it. And he says, please send somebody else. Now, maybe in your life, you've not been called to some big position of leadership where you are saying, God, get somebody else. But there are a lot of things that happen in life where your heart says, Lord, please, not this. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis that comes your way and it really petrifies you and you think, Lord, I can't do this. Or maybe it's the loss of a loved one. You thought, how could I ever live through that scenario? And yet, here you are. There are a lot of things that happen in life that are unexpected and you think, I can't do it. Please don't make me go through this. And yet God says, trust me. Many here have lived through a lot of valleys in life, a lot of difficulties, and know that even though they are hard, God is with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. So he's calling Moses. He says, look, I'll get your brother Aaron. He'll come and do the speaking. He's a good speaker. But notice the part that it says, the Lord's anger burned against Moses. I dare say that today Moses would love it if that part was erased from the scripture. Have you ever thought about this? Do you suppose the Lord's anger has ever burned against you? I mean, clearly the scripture indicates that God gets angry. Certainly what angers him the most is the evil perpetrated by humankind. And his anger is just and righteous he has created us in his image, therefore we have the capacity for anger. Oftentimes we use anger in our selfishness rather than in justice. But God gets angry. I've probably angered God before. Hopefully not in a long time. I don't want to anger God. But in my rebellion as a young person, I'm sure he was not pleased. And see, any of us in rebelling against his will, could anger him. See, that's what Moses is doing. He's basically saying, I'm not the man, you got the wrong person, don't, don't send me, find somebody else. And God said, I've chosen you. He's basically saying to Moses, grow up. That's why I'm not a, a good marriage counselor, because that's what I tend to want to say to the couples usually. It's really the truth most of the time. I've, I've said this before, but I literally said to a couple one time, you're too old to divorce and too young to die. You're going to have to work this out. <laughs> I think I said it twice, two different couples. So if you're thinking about calling me for marriage counseling, you're probably looking for another number right now. <laughs> but it says that the Lord's anger burned against Moses. But of course, we know the story. What happened? God called Moses, used him. It wasn't because of Moses' great strength. It was because God sovereignly chose to do something through him that for all of history would go, was going to have extraordinary importance. He's going to deliver the nation of Israel out of Egypt, take them into the promised land. Everything he does with Israel is a foreshadowing of what he does with us in Christ. 
And Moses, of course, fulfills the duty. Sometimes he does it very well. Sometimes he's a little weak. But his anger showed back up. That is Moses' anger, like when he killed the Egyptian. It showed back up from time to time. And as a consequence, he only saw the promised land. He didn't get to enter it. Of course, he entered it eternally. And that is sort of like you and I. You and I can only perceive of heaven. We won't enter it in this world, so to speak, but we can perceive that there is a promised land for each one of us. But God chose him. Moses was afraid he would what? Fail. He's like, I can't do it. I'm sure in his heart, he's starting to have fear that I'm gonna fail. But here's the principle. If it is something that God calls you to, and God is the one who is going to do it, you cannot fail. If it's you doing it in your own strength, you have the option to fail. You can fail in different ways. But if it's truly God's perfect will and you're walking in his will, you're not rebelling against his will, he is the one doing it, not you, and by definition, God cannot fail. So that begs the question of, well, what is failure? Well, first and foremost, it's doing my will apart from God. This is what most people do all of the time. That I'm about doing my own thing, disregarding God, basically living my own lustful, sinful life. It's lust of the eyes, pride of life, lust of the flesh, and so forth. That if I, totally, if I go through this life and totally miss the will of God for my life, totally disobey, that's failure. And the scripture says, wide is the road that leads to destruction. Many are on that path, but narrow is the way that is of Christ. Another way to fail is to rebel against God's will. Of course, all sin is essentially rebellion against God's will, but, but when you know what he's calling you to and you rebel against it. I believe the Spirit of God goes out drawing every person unto himself and to reject salvation is to rebel against his perfect will. But yet people are doing that. A good example of somebody who rebelled against God's will and was nearly a failure was who in the Scripture? Jonah. Because he knew exactly what God called him to. He clearly rebelled against it to the point where God's anger surely burned against Jonah. You don't want to spend three, day, three days in a, in a submerged. That means God's not happy. And see, he was rebelling against God's will. He was failing. But think about Jonah. When he went to Nineveh in the mission that God called him to, was he a success? Yes, not because of Jonah, but because of what? This is what God was going to do. He's going to bring about revival and repentance in the nation of, or in the city of Nineveh. And the people there repented. There was a great revival, not because of Jonah, but because of God. Because God was not going to fail in his mission. And if Jonah hadn't continued on the path, somebody else would have been called to fulfill that role. Another way to fail is to do God's will in my strength. In other words, I know what is God's will. I'm about doing it, but I don't rely upon God. I rely upon myself. There's a clear example of somebody in scripture who did that. Who was it? King Saul. 
Because remember, Saul had been called by God, but he became prideful. They were about to go to battle. The priests were supposed to offer sacrifices and prayers before they went to battle. There was no priest available. And Saul took it upon himself to do it anyway. You see, in his pride, he said, I'll take care of it. I can handle it. When you're doing something that might be God's will, but you're doing it in your own strength, it can easily fail. Then there's the thing of partly doing God's will. And I think this is the problem for the vast majority of Christians in this country. That there are many, many, many people who generally do God's will. They generally are honorable people, generally don't lie, generally don't steal. But from time to time, they're doing things that are clearly not of God. They're essentially living a double-minded life. That they put forth a facade that I've got it together, I'm okay, I'm a good person, particularly in the church context. All the while they're sleeping around or they're addicted to pornography or they're lying regularly in their business or they're stealing or greedy or something, they're gossiping. See, that's pretending to do God's will but only partly doing it. See, here's the critical thing. You want to be right in the heart of God's will for you. And see, a lot of people say, well, I don't know what God's will is for me. Yes, you do. The first and foremost part of God's will is written upon your heart in the moral law of God. What he wants are people who are seeking righteousness, who are seeking to live holy and righteous lives, who are honorable and true and trustworthy, who have integrity, who are not violating the basic moral commands of God. That's the first and foremost thing of his will for you. If you are violating those, you are by definition outside of his will to some extent. But if you're walking in his will with moral integrity, he reveals to you his daily will by the things he sets before you. His spirit guides you if you're in intimate relationship with him and you're listening to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks to you, guides you, gives you direction in life. See, the, the place you want to be more than anything else is the thing that the spirits of evil do not want for you. God wants you where you're listening to him, following his will, honoring him, walking in righteousness. That is a wonderful place. The spirits of evil are always trying to pull you away from that. To get you to do God's will a little bit, but not completely. And then worse is that not only can you be doing your own will, but you can get so far away that you are doing the will of the spirits of evil and Satan himself. The clear example of that in scripture was Judas, where it even says that the devil entered him that caused him to betray Christ and for all eternity be known as the one who did so. He ended up taking his own life in such misery under the conviction of what he had done. But you see, that's to be a failure is along those lines. It's to be outside of God's will, disobeying what you know is his will. It's the person who's married but has a mistress on the side and all the while trying to pretend that I'm walking with God. See, therein lies failure. 
A person who is a success is a person who is doing God's will. See, this is why Moses was ultimately a success because he submitted to and followed God's will. Here's another example. This is in the book of Judges. It's the story of Gideon. It says, now the context of this is that Israel has been worshiping false gods, particularly Baal worship. And as a consequence, as an act of judgment, God has given them over to themselves and taken his protective hand away. This is what I've talked about, about God's passive judgment and his active judgment. God's passive judgment is simply when he takes his protective hand away and lets you reap what you have sown. In this case, the Midianites have been attacking Israel for seven years. It's been going on repetitively and God has not been protecting them. But then God intervenes and he sends an angel to speak to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, as you read the rest of the context of that, Gideon thinks, me, I'm not a mighty warrior. Now, some people think, well, maybe Gideon had proven himself as a mighty warrior before this, maybe so. I tend to think that he hadn't proven himself, but rather that God's gonna make him into a mighty warrior. And he, Gideon replies and says, if the Lord is with us, with me, he's thinking, why has all this happened? In other words, why have the Midianites been so successful against Israel? Where is God? He said, what about all the wonders our fathers told us about? And the portion that I left out there is about, he's talking about when God delivered them from Egypt, the story of Moses that we just looked at. He says, but now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. Well, the reason God has done that is they're under judgment. And God has sent prophets to warn the nation, to call them to repentance, and now he's going to use Gideon to defeat the Midianites. The Lord turned to him and said, go in, in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. He says, am I not sending you? Now here you got a guy again who thinks, wait a minute, I'm not a mighty warrior and where's God anyway? And now he's going to be with me? Now, interestingly though, Gideon's response is a little different from that of Moses. Moses said, get somebody else. Gideon just begins to explain. He says, how can I save Israel? Now, if I was Moses, I would have said the same thing. How could I deliver Israel from Egypt? And in this case, Gideon says, look, I am, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. In other words, we're the smallest group of people and he says, on top of that, I am the least in my family. He's saying, look, I am a little dude and I am not the guy with a big army. Surely you're not calling me. He's basically afraid of what? Failing. He thinks he's not up to the task. He really fears failing. And God's gonna give him a job that is enormous. Now, again, if Gideon had immediately said, great, I've got it, eh, there probably would have been a problem. See, it's in our weakness where God is strong. But he gives him this explanation. He says, I don't know about this. But God responds. He says, I'll be with you. You will strike down all the Midianites together. Now, Gideon at that point didn't say, get somebody else. He's listened to what God has said, but he does say, now, if I have found favor in your eyes, 
He's very humble. He says, please give me a sign that it's really you. Like, make sure I am not just dreaming something here that is crazy. He said, I I believe you, but I, I really need to know it's you. Now, this leads into the question. He, he does what is referred to as his fleece. He puts it out and he wants it to be dry and the ground wet and then vice versa and so forth. And, and he's wanting God just to give him a clear sign that this is what he's to do. And it's a reasonable thing for him to ask. God's not displeased with that. doesn't say God was angry with him. He's, he's just saying, Lord, if you want me to do this gigantic thing, I really, really need to know it's you. And God says, okay, very well. Now, the whole subject of a fleece sometimes becomes a little controversial among people. Some people think you should put out a fleece about everything, and some people think you should never put out a fleece. Well, I think there's something in between there. In other words, if I'm, if I'm trying to decide whether or not I should buy gas and I don't have any money in my billfold, and I'm praying, Lord, if, if you'll give me $30 in my billfold, I'll go buy gas, and it's not there, that's probably not a fleece, that's a test. It's probably God saying, you need to get a job. See, there's a difference between a fleece and a test. A test is giving God something he has to do to prove himself. A fleece is just simply saying, Lord, confirm to me one or the other. And so he's saying, I need a sign. Now, it's interesting. This is a true story. I have a pastor friend who essentially put out a fleece that was very unusual. I actually told this story a long time ago. Some of you might remember it. He's a pastor down in South Carolina. And at the time, this was many years ago, he was considering getting married. And he'd met this young woman and he was really thinking this was the right person. And I won't go into all the details, but he had one big reason why he wasn't sure he should ask her to marry him. And it had to do more with himself than with her, okay? But he really was uncertain. He told me this story. He said he was out fishing on a bass pond, a big, big bass pond, as I recall. And the water level must have been down or something because he told me that he was fishing from the bank, but there was a long stretch of mud between him and the water. Let's say hypothetically, say between the stage here and the first row, that it was just all mud in there and he's fishing on the other side of it. And he told me he's there by himself and he'd been praying that day and he was really wrestling with whether or not he should ask her to marry him. And finally, during the day, he said, Lord, if you want me to marry her, please let me catch one fish. He had not caught any fish all day long. He said, just give me a sign. Now, I know this is probably not the most biblical, wise thing a person could do, but this is what he did. It's a true story. He said, Lord, Lord, just one fish to confirm. So he keeps fishing. Sure enough, in a little while, he hooks a bass, a big bass, right? Now remember, he's on the bank and the bass is out in the water. So he's trying to get that thing in. It gets stuck at the edge of the mud. And he told me this story. He's like, he said, I I had to get this thing in. I couldn't let it get free. So he starts wading out into the mud. As he tells me that the mud gets really deep. And he he tells me, as he told the story, essentially what he did was he fell into the mud, wrestled the bass and got it back to shore. He's covered in mud. But you know what? He's going to ask her to marry him. He, he was he's sure it was a sign from the Lord, the muddy fish. And sure enough, they've been married for many, many years. Now you might think, oh, I don't know if that's the best example I've ever heard of. Well, it's true. That's what he did. 
He simply said, Lord, give me a sign. When the sign showed up, he was not gonna let it go. Now, there's sometimes, see, don't test God. The scripture says, do not test him except for in one thing. What is it? In giving. Like if, if you know God is calling you to go and do something, it's gonna require you to drive to another state and you're saying, Lord, I will go if you'll put a brand new car in my driveway tomorrow, then I'll go. Well, what you're doing is testing God. That's not a fleece. A fleece is saying, Lord, just give me some indication. Make it clear that this is your will. And so Gideon did that. God confirmed it to him. And we know with Gideon, what happened? Well, first, he raised a big army of thousands of men and God said, mm, your army's too big. In which case I would have said, Lord, I need another fleece. But instead God whittled his army down and then it got smaller and he said, it's still too big. Let's whittle it down more. Ultimately, when he goes to battle with the Midianites, he has 300 fighting men. He went from thousands to 300. When they go to battle, what happens? God goes before them. They don't even really have to battle. Who got the glory? God did. Could Gideon fail? How? He could fail by disobeying God's will, being outside of God's will. As long as he was in God's will, could he fail? No, because what? Who's doing it? God's doing it, not Gideon. See, here's the point. You can fail by getting outside of God's will, disobeying, doing all kinds of things in rejection of his will. As long as you are smack dab in the heart of his will, doing what he has called you to, you cannot fail. Not because of you, but because God is doing it. See, by definition, if it is God's will, if it is something he has set out to do, he cannot fail. So if you are perfectly aligned in his will, you cannot fail. Not because of you, but because of him. See, this is why it's so important to seek him with all your heart, your soul, and your mind as you go through life in everything to be right in his will so that you will not fail because he is the one accomplishing things through you, not you. Maybe you're given some, maybe it's a task as simple as parenting. Oh, wait a minute, I shouldn't say it that way. I was parenting, it's not simple. But it, Maybe it's the task of parenting and you're really wondering like, am I a good parent? Am I failing as a parent? If you're walking in his will, listening to him, obeying him day by day, he's the one doing it, not you. That's true in everything. See, there's this interesting scripture in the book of Acts. This is after Pentecost. The disciples now have been anointed of the Spirit. They're doing miraculous things. People are being healed. They're preaching the gospel everywhere. And that makes the Pharisees and all the members of the Sanhedrin angry. They even had some of them arrested, thrown in prison. An angel of the Lord set them free. They're back out on the streets preaching again. And that's where we pick up this story. It says when the people in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the others, that when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Heard that the disciples were back out preaching the gospel again. Said, But there was a Pharisee there, Gamaliel, who undoubtedly was very wise. Says he's the teacher of the law, honored among the people that he stood up before the Sanhedrin before the religious council. And he said to them, he said, consider what you're about to do. He said, what you should do with these men of Israel. 
He said, he gave it some examples. He said in the past, there were these other people who appeared, they had a following, the person died, the following scattered. He gave a couple of examples of that. And he basically said, look, there are these groups that arise from time to time. They get followings, but they just dissipate. You don't have to worry about them. He said, therefore, in the present case, I advise you this. He said, leave these people alone. Let them go. Don't do anything. Some people, sometimes they get all upset about things. What are we going to do about this? And sometimes the wisest thing is nothing. Just let it be. He says, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. See, that's a principle. If what you're about is just a human thing, eh, it's not going to have all that much success. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only be fighting against God himself. Now, that was very wise. And he was correct, was he not? I mean, look at the disciples. God gave them a mission starting at Pentecost. Did they fail? Not a one of them. I mean, look at where we are today. Thousands of years later, millions upon millions of people who've heard the gospel and come to know Christ, we are still today discussing the work and ministry of the disciples who were ordinary people who were surrendered to God's will to the point they were willing to die. See, they were extraordinary successes, not because of their gifts and talents, but because they were in God's will and he was the one who was doing it. See, the Apostle Paul's a good example. Before he knew Christ, he thought he was a success. But what was he? He was a failure. Before he knew Christ, he thought he was a success, but he was a failure. After he knew Christ, the Sanhedrin and others would have thought what? Now he's a failure, but in fact, he becomes a success. Because it's no longer Paul doing it in his own strength. It's God doing it through him. See, he's the perfect example. Somebody who was an extraordinary success in the world of his time, yet he was a failure. After he encountered Christ, his life is flipped upside down. The world would have thought, now he's failed, but he was really a success. So the question for all of us is, going back to the question of last week, am I succeeding in following God's will? Or am I trying to succeed in the world? Am I failing at walking with God, honoring him, seeking him with all of my heart? Or am I failing in a way that God sees as failure, but the world looks upon it positively? But here's the point. People tend to fear failure. If you are in God's perfect will, he is doing it. And by definition, you cannot fail. Now, I should put an asterisk with that and say, I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel, that if you have enough faith, you're going to be successful in everything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you are surrendered to in his will, honoring him, listening to him, 
He's the one who brings about success in your life. He's the one doing it. From start to finish, because he's the one who created you, gave you gifts and talents, fills you with the spirit. It's his spirit working through you. He's the one who accomplishes everything that has eternal value. So in him, and in him alone, you cannot fail. Lord, I pray for every person here who fears failure, who says, send somebody else, or I'm not capable. I'm the least of my clan. I pray for freedom for all of us. Not in our own strength, but in you. To know that whatever you call us to, that is your will, it cannot fail because of who you are. I pray for any person here who's in a bondage to fear, afraid of failing, that they would be set free to honor you and walk with you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org. And make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. 